Hello, Results My Very listeners. It's Tracy. I'm excited to share this very special episode featuring a panel conversation on the topic of psychedelic medicine and design. I recently co-hosted this live event at the Stanford University Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, aka the D-School, with my teaching colleagues Elisa Fennenbach and Dr. Johnny Glick. We set out to explore the question, what is the role of design as we transition psychedelic medicine from the research lab to medical clinics and journey spaces? How might they be used for the most good to individuals, cultures, and ecological ecosystems, including the plants and molecules themselves? The great news is this event went so well that Elisa and I have been teaching Stanford's first full-term class this spring called Forbidden Design Psychedelic Medicine. Our third co-lecturer is Dr. Manish Agarwal, an accomplished heart-centered oncologist and CEO of Sunstone Therapies, which is leading the research and delivery of psychedelic therapies for those touched by cancer and other diseases. And that has gone so well that we were recently offered the opportunity to teach it again next year. So if you're interested in the topic, please stay tuned. We're hoping to expand this inquiry and our design perspective beyond the halls of Stanford. All right, let me introduce our guests in the order of how you'll hear them in the recording. Ismail Ali is the Director of Policy and Advocacy for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Dr. Allison Fiducia is a neuropharmacologist, psychedelic researcher, and educator. Ayuse Jama Everett is an author, professor, producer, and guerrilla theologian. And Dr. Kyra Bobinet, who you may know from being a guest on this show twice, is also known as Maymay and is an enrolled member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe and the founder and CEO of health tech company Fresh Try. Okay, enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the D School. If you haven't been here before, we like gongs. <laughs> so <laughs> when you hear a gong, it means something. It means, listen, a transition may be happening. One of the questions we're exploring big questions we're exploring tonight um, and over the course of this course is what does what is the role of design in psychedelic medicine because we as a teaching team and we at the D school believe design has an important role and are asking the question of where where can it serve the space most effectively can I invite my co-teachers on to stage my name is Elisa Fennenbach and I have been teaching at the D school for over a decade and I am here because I have firsthand witnessed how life-saving and transformational this medicine can be. It's not for everyone, but it can be for some. And I know how even in that context, it's still quite broken and there's still a lot of areas of improvement. Um, We can do better and we should be doing better. And that as as a designer, I know is my, my role and my opportunity. And where can we talk about these questions, both in the context of who understands what do we mean by design, who can have that conversation with us, and where is it safe to have that conversation. So even today, with this course, with this title, I wasn't sure if I could wear this outfit. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. But I'm at Stanford. Like, is this okay? I don't know. I'm an academic. I'm a professional. I'm a mom. Like, can I... Uh-oh. And so that, that's the space that we want to make here, is to be able to have some of these potentially dangerous um, conversations and, and surface them for, for the power for what they can do. 
Um, I'm Tracy DeLuca. I work as a design strategist, primarily in healthcare, primarily in the mental health and wellness space. Um, I came to this work basically pursuing a question through my own family. How can I help those in my immediate family with their mental health challenges? And in pursuing that question, sort of came to realize that, one, it's not my role to do that, although that's um, a good thing to think, but also just discovering the need that I had for myself. And so, um, yeah, I just have been pursuing the question of, why is healthcare so broken? Is it too broken to fix? Can design play a role in helping to make something come to life that's more uh, equitable, fair, uh, results in better health impact outcomes, um, and just as more just compassionate. So it kind of led me to this work. And um, yeah, I just have an open question. I've seen it work for myself in a therapeutic environment. And so I just have a question of what else is possible. And again, how does design play a role? Yeah, I went with the more uh, conservative outfit today. <laughs> Um, next class, I'll, I'll, um, I'll match Lisa. Yeah, thanks, thanks everyone for, com for coming. I'm Gianni. I'm a, a fourth-year psychiatry resident here at the School of Medicine. Not a designer. These are the, the powerhouse designers of the team. Everyone um, is a designer. Everyone is a designer. So I'm, I'm the clinical side. I, I come, there's not a linear or heroic story of why I'm here, except that I um, have experienced the power of psychedelics uh, on both sides of, of the couch, I guess. I'll start with the proposal that uh, psychedelics are not one thing. Psychedelic medicine isn't, isn't one thing. No person or group or worldview um, has any claim to the ground truth of what psychedelics do or uh, how they work or what they're good for. As I'm sure you know, psychedelics have been used for thousands of years across continents, across cultures, in ritual, in ceremony, they've been used for divination and protection, um, for healing, and then more recently in the 50s and 60s uh, in psychiatry as adjuncts to therapy, and then the darker side as agents of mind control in the CIA, uh, or attempted uh, agents. And across these different uses uh, and conceptions of psychedelics, I think what they all understood is that there's a, um, there's a, a profound power to the psychedelic experience. And maybe some of you here uh, have experienced or encountered that power for yourselves, either up close uh, and personally or indirectly or through a family member or in some other way. I think we're here literally today for the, the most recent layer of history, which has been two decades um, of research in, in psychiatry and mental health, trialing psychedelic therapy, which is a very specific thing. It's a, it's a new invention. Therapy is a new invention, and psychedelic therapy is our brand of, of ritual. Two decades of research trialing this kind of treatment for all different kinds of suffering, from post-traumatic stress disorder to anxiety and depression to people who have a terminal cancer diagnosis, different forms of addiction. Across all of these diagnoses, these different flavors of suffering, what we have found is that there are fairly profound reductions in, in symptoms. Um, but more than that, people seem to report that these are uh, deeply personally meaningful experiences. And people have taken notice. So raise your hand if, if your mom read uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. 
that was in 2018, that was a kind of inflection point. The media has taken a lot of notice, a lot of positive coverage, um, and the government too. So MDMA and psilocybin uh, now have what's called breakthrough therapy designation, meaning that they are promising treatments for life-threatening conditions, uh, in this case, depression and, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And also meaning that if the data continues to be really positive, they're on track to become legal medicines in a few short years. We'll introduce this later, but actually we have the team from MAPS, maybe the single most important institution, organization in this entire movement, arguably. Who knows about MAPS? Yeah, yeah, we've got them here. That, that's where we are today. It's, it's on the backs of two decades of research in the 50s and, and that on the back of thousands of years of, of use with psychedelics. Um, I, I'll end with um, suggesting that tonight is a kind of um, sampler plate for, for the psychedelic world and you can sample the flavors behind which is a, is a vast world of, of many different domains which psychedelic stretches into from culture and policy to medicine and science and everything else. So um, keep in mind why you're here. Keep in mind what your curiosity is. As people say things on our panel, um, take note of what strikes you as true or what conflicts with your idea, um, your, your intuition. Keep it in mind. And the last thing I'll say is I think it's a special place to be in at this moment in time in this playground of the design school um, half the reason I'm here in the first place is because of the people. So be, be curious. Talk to your neighbor. You're, you're all here for some reason. It would be interesting to find out why. And I think uh, we can now transition to our panel. <laughs> to, um, to start us off, um, this is a question for everybody. Maybe we can go one by one. Um, the question is, how did you come to this work, and, and why is it important to you? Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for the invitation. So glad to share the stage with these amazing people, old friends, new friends. I will try to be brief, because there's a gajillion ways that the story could be told. Um, but on one track, you could say, I grew up in Fresno, California, son of two immigrants, uh, and politically socialized during the Bush era post 9-11, young Muslim, confused, seeking truth, and um, highly politicized by mostly the Patriot Act and the violation of civil liberties that occurring at that time. So that was really the beginning of my political socialization, you could say. Um, it was in that process that I came into contact with mushrooms, now about 16 years ago, and um, kind of transformed some of that angst that I was feeling into curiosity. Uh, ended up going to law school, pivoting from civil liberties surveillance, issues that I'm still really interested in, but uh, realized other people would be better served to work on uh, into drug policy in about 2014, 2015. And started first kind of broadly within the era of like bail and prosecutorial reform, and then eventually drug policy specifically, and then more specifically than psychedelics. Uh, so I started at MAPS as a fellow when I graduated from Berkeley Law School um, in 2016, 2015, 2016. And since then have kind of shifted from like the role of educator to legislative analyst to a variety of things and now direct policy at MAPS, uh, which is a little bit of all of those pieces. And like Jenny was saying, involves a lot of talking about the law to people who either are subject to it, oppressed by it, or not understanding of it in various forms. 
Um, and on another level, I have, uh, so that's one track, and on another level, my um, family uh, on my mother's side in Colombia and in Mexico have been working with these uh, traditions for now about 30 years in kind of Western transpersonal and also sacred indigenous contexts with uh, native practitioners all over Central and South America as well as in Africa. So it was kind of inevitable they ended up here. Um, it was not necessarily inevitable they ended up at this particular event, so I'm really glad to be here and glad to be in this conversation. I guess just in one sentence, um, I would say my primary purpose of like following, utilizing the law, which I experienced as an oppressive force for most of my younger life and still in many ways, um, as a tool to protect people who are doing healing work. So that's really the frame that I approach, which is like, what are the healers doing? How can they do their work un as uninterrupted as possible? Um, and uh, maybe not so burdened by the various mores of the state. We'll go more into that, but that's what I'm here for. Nice to meet you all. Um, so my journey started early on when I was 15 years old growing up in Louisiana, and I had the great idea to take some LSD with some friends and go to a Catholic high school dance. Um, a Sadie Hawkins dance at that. <laughs> which it was all wonderful and started off great, but I ended up having what uh, we would say a classic bad trip or challenging experience where I it landed in the hospital. And I had this crazy experience, I won't get into it, but essentially it set me on this path of life of trying to understand how this tiny drop of LSD could shift my consciousness in such a way, such a profound way, uh, that made my whole life experience to that point in time just fall to, like a house of cards, fall to pieces. Um, and I really started to learn more about philosophy and different religions and spirituality. But most importantly, the neuropharmacology uh, was calling to me because we still don't really know <laughs> how that little drop of some substance can have these experiences that we call mind, mind manifesting or mind revealing is the way I see psychedelics. And yeah, so today I've been working in research for a number of years, uh, substance use, PTSD with MDMA and psilocybin, and I'm really excited but also cautious and know we have to be very careful with how we approach this. And uh, that's how we started a site, Psychedelic Support, in 2018 to bring more resources and education so that other 15-year-olds don't have the experience I had and that we can be on a good track with how we approach psychedelics. So I'm really excited to be here and, and share experiences with you tonight. I guess I'm going. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm from a culture when you talk to somebody, they have to talk back. It's a thing. Hi, everybody. Hi. Thank you. Now I can talk. Sorry, it's just a thing. Um, my name is Ayize. Um, I'm realizing I'm relatively new to psychedelics. Plant medicine, I grew up in, I grew up around, I grew up with African traditional healers and people alternating their states of consciousness in order to have visions to heal community. My father is Matulu Shakur. He was one of the first people to bring acupuncture to the South Bronx in Harlem, working with heroin addicts who were just getting out of prison using a five-point ear technique to help them detox and then teaching them how to do that technique with other people. Um, so growing up, heroin, coke, marijuana, LSD, mushrooms, the divide was not that big for me. It was a question of the, the relationship that people had with them. Um, how I came into the work, um, I'm older than 
a lot of my colleagues in this in this field, and I'm realizing, um, you know, there was no maps training when I when I first wanted to get into this. So I went and got a master's in divinity, and then got a master's in clinical psychology, and then realized that the best training I had was from those elders that um, my mom had run away from in North Carolina, and I had run away from in New York. Um, so I went back and started doing that work. Um, I continue to work. And more in the field of plant medicine, I'll say, um, writ large, um, with psychedelics as something that, um, as I've become, as I've come above ground, I'm seeing the need to have the conversation as to, you know, the distinctions. Not that one's better than the other, but like there are some distinctions that I think that are important. Um, and I'm here because I went to a lovely dinner, and s some people asked me if I'd be willing to come and talk at Stanford, and I said, "Ooh, Stanford!" So that's pretty much it. So in 2017, my husband and I went to the Four Seasons Hotel in San Francisco to the Tibetan Aid Project dinner. It's a fundraiser. And he said, hey, you know, I've never been to. And he goes, I want to travel with you for like three months. And I was thinking, if you travel right now for three months, there will be no startup when you get back. So um, we went to this dinner, and there was a little booklet of different trips. And one of them was to Costa Rica. And I was like, that's the one. Months later. I go to, I'm being interviewed by this podcaster, and he stops the recording after we're done. He's like, okay, great. So I'm not going to post this for several weeks because I'm going to Costa Rica. And I go, oh, we are too. You know, we're going to go there in, in November. This is like March. I'm going to go to a, a retreat center. I go, oh, we are too. Like, we got this, this thing, you know, and, and it said, you know, vegetarian food and healthy food, organic, yoga, all these things. And then he's like, yeah, but I'm going to a plant medicine retreat. Are you going to a plant medicine retreat? And I go, what's that? I don't know what you mean, you know? And he goes, he goes, well, I'm going to Rhythmia. And I said, but that sounds really familiar. And so then we started to get to the planning and all these things, and we start talking to Rhythmia, and then we get our plane tickets and all these things, and we go down to Costa Rica. And we didn't think about it. We're so busy running our company and all these things. And we go down there, and we're on the flight, and I'm like, are you... Are you going to do plant medicine? Because we knew that it, it was available. But I thought it was like Esalen where there's like, there's a track where people are doing art therapy and there's another track where you're doing yoga. And so I thought, you know, there's like a group of people who go off into the forest and they, they do ayahuasca. And so, you know, Josh was having some depression, anxiety. And I said, I think it'd be really good for you. And he's like, yeah, I think so. And I go, he goes, are you going to do it? I go, because, you know, I, I was tracking PTSD my whole life. So I went to UCSF as for medical school and from that time when I worked with veterans on, and my mom has PTSD pretty bad from the boarding schools. And so, you know, it's been really meaningful to me to kind of watch what this does from a neuroscience perspective. I go, well, yeah, but I'm good. I just came off my vision quest that I've been doing since I was 24 every year, and so I'm good. I, I don't need to do anything. I'm, I'm full up. I'm just gonna sit by the pool and you can go and, you know, do your thing. So we get to the, to the hotel, and then they send a shuttle to the hotel to bring us to the retreat center, which is about an hour ride. And they show you a video, and I'm like, oh no, like this isn't just something you do, this is the thing that 80 people from around the world have scraped together their, their dollars. And we show up, and all these 80 people were like laughing. They're like, are you kidding me? You accidentally went to an ayahuasca retreat? <laughs> and, <clears throat> and that set me on this journey. And I came home and I said, honey, we're going we're gonna to offer this to our company because I can't, now that I know this type of healing, I cannot withhold it from, 
people that we work with and people that we care about. And about half the company has taken us up on it and half don't, and we don't prefer those who do and you know, discriminate against those who don't, but it has made all the difference in how our companies run and how the executive team kind of bonds with each other and kind of how we, how we um, hold truth. Thank you. Thank you. Very powerful stories. Thank you for sharing. Um, I think the next question we want to ask is, not everybody's familiar with psychedelics or what they mean, what they do. How would you describe what they are or why people should care who maybe aren't familiar with the space? Easy. This is a point I make all the time. Um, so I'm going to slightly disagree with you on this. Um, psychedelics is a white term. It is constructed by white people to describe many different things. But it's not a singular chemical class. It's not a singular experience. Um, it does indicate a specific time and place in American culture when privileged white men got to travel around the world, interact usually with women of color connected to the land over the age of 50, um, learn their songs, their medicine, their weaving techniques, lots of different things, bring back chemical compounds to the UK, the US, uh, Switzerland, and other places, um, and um, use those compounds for a really great effect, but in the context of a Western medical model of health and healing, right, which requires symptom, right? I'll say a, a distinction might be um, plant medicine traditions don't necessarily need sickness, right? Um, we're talking more and more in the psychedelic space about healthy normals, right? And what do healthy normals get out of doing these compounds? I think that's, that's part of that tradition of plant medicine, that like communal use of these substances often has a really positive benefit that might counteract some of those feelings of isolation, desperation, loneliness, depression, whatever, like all that, that separation that sometimes journeying in group kind of counteracts. So I think psychedelics is, um, again, not a bad terminology, and I'm sure people will push back, and that's fine. But I do think, because I work prim primarily with people of color and plant medicine, if I say, hey, do you want to do some psychedelics? A lot of people I know would be like, fuck you, get away from me. But if I said, yo, do you want to do some root work? you want to do some plant work? They might be like, well, what do you mean by plant work? And then we can have that conversation, and it's a little bit more... Um, engaged, but for a lot of people, psychedelics equals white, or it's coded as white. Fight. No, I'm <laughs> uh, I'll just add to that as uh, a researcher, you know, there are a lot of different substances that are lumped under the term psychedelic, and in some ways that can lead to misinformation where we think psilocybin maybe has the same risk profile as ibogaine. Uh, where it, it really doesn't, and the safety parameters and who different substances might be appropriate or not appropriate for, um, it's really important that we think about the actual pharmacology and safety and effects. Um, so just to name off a few, we have the classical psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, DMT. We have intactogens like MDMA or MDA. Um, there's also ketamine, which is, which is a dissociative compound. Some people even consider cannabis at higher doses to be psychedelic, which it can very well be. Uh, so 
there's a lot of terminology and facts and things like that to think about, but as well as the cultural implications of different words or terms that we use. I can just add that. <laughs> I like psychedelic because uh, I agree with what you're saying, Aze. We actually don't disagree about that. But I think that the term has become, um, it's really a, an adjective. It's like a versatile adjective that when described as a noun, I think falls in the category of what you were just saying, Ali, where it's like it's this class of class that describes like certain substances that have these certain effects. Um, but to your point, I think because of the way that it was kind of introduced into Western American European consciousness in particular, it's expanded to mean forms of, obviously, as you all know, like forms of art, um, forms of behavior, forms of other things that uh, maybe are inspired by or associated with the substances themselves, but I think now has come to mean something broader than that. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about like how there is a lot of like psychedelic art that's inspired by the psychedelic experience, but I would argue that like now the <clears throat> understanding of like psychedelic art falls in the same category as like surrealist art where it's this very large umbrella where a lot of types of things can fall into it. Um, and then there's a conversation that I think we're getting to here, which is around like the substances and their use and the healing potential and all those other pieces, which is, I guess, where we're going to next. So maybe continuing on this theme of the plurality of uses and even, even words for psychedelics as a placeholder. We were having a conversation at dinner earlier about um, what is it that um, we, if we can use this word we, are trying to create. Let, let's assume, let's take it for, for as true that we are part of a psychedelic movement. Where are we going? Where, where do we want to go? What do we want this to look like in five years? And how, what are the pain points in getting from here to there? Um, sure, well, I'll, I'll jump in on the medical side of things, and then Izzy can talk about the uh, initiatives that are happening at the state and local level. So with the medical research, we are looking at uh, several programs going through the FDA process for drug development, and this means that there are several phases of clinical trials that are now testing MDMA and psilocybin, which are furthest along, uh, but there's also lots of new compounds now that are in the early phases of testing. And where we you know, hope this goes is that there's uh, uh, ample data collected, both safety and the efficacy uh, standpoints, to really understand how we can use psychedelics as a treatment. And if we can, then how do we combine that with different types of therapies or different types of approaches to achieve outcomes that are sustained over time? where someone doesn't necessarily have to rely on uh, medications every day, or, or maybe they will still, but the idea is that um, psychedelic therapy might help with some disorders of getting to the root cause of what's driving uh, those issues in someone's life. <clears throat> and so as we look to the future of MDMA being approved in maybe 2023, 2024, and psilocybin a year or two later, uh, we really want to ensure that people have access to this treatment, and it's not just uh, reserved for people that have privilege and money to, to afford uh, the extensive amount of therapies and the cost of the treatments. And we're also, a lot of work is going into insurance coverage or other ways of uh, cutting costs for other people to be able to, for everyone to be able to access this in various dimensions. Um, but I also have in my vision that other models that are happening um, at ch on church levels or state and local levels, which I know Izzy is really well versed in these topics, so I'll pass it over to you. 
I'll take it, but I would love to hear both of your opinions too. So I hope we get, I hope we all get to answer this question. So um, those are big questions that you just asked. So I'll, I'll like touch on them, and maybe we can go more into them later when we all when we all hang out. Um, so the way I like to think about this question is um, in actually through a design framework, which uh, is to say that there has been this sense that, and this isn't just true of psychedelics, this isn't even just true of healthcare, this is I think true in a lot of policy environments where there's been this sense that we have to like pick a, pick a path. And we have to pick a path and we have to design access according to that particular path. And the one that Ali is describing, that's certainly the furthest ahead when it comes to uh, like legal infrastructure, you could say, has to do with the medical path. Which to your point earlier, which I think is a really valid one, is like, generally based on a diagnosis frame, where like if you don't have something that's wrong with you, then you can't opt into that path. You kind of, kind of think of that as a floor. So like you have a bar minimum, uh, minimum barrier to entry is this like diagnosis of some kind. Um, and there's a lot of things we could say about elective treatment and access to care in the American healthcare system that maybe we'll go down that rabbit hole later on. But what I'd like to like offer is that that is one important path for people that need a particular type of infrastructure as much as I have lots of critiques about the American healthcare system, there are ways in which it does work, and there are ways in which there's a lot of expertise and excellence within it. Um, and I think balancing these pieces out, I like to think of what we're trying to get to as a zero-sum policy approach, where multiple kinds of policy approaches can occur in harmony. And that, to me, means looking at medicalization and building out all the support infrastructure for access, as Ali says, and also looking at a number of other possible frameworks, some of which have you could say more and less, uh, more uh, lower and higher touch uh, interaction from the state. So where you have medical on one side, where you have relatively high regulatory infrastructure from the state, but really most of that um, care framework is designed by medical providers themselves. The state in general tends to stay out of conversations when it comes to medical care. They prefer having the medical providers make those determinations through boards and other, other infrastructure. And then you have kind of these two middle ground areas that are semi-regulated in different ways. One might be like a regulated adult use infrastructure right now being pioneered at the state level in Oregon, which is a non-medical but has medical adjacent kind of elements. But in that case, you have a diagnosis ceiling. So only if you have certain contraindications are you not allowed to participate. Otherwise, all adults 21 and up are assumed to participate. So you might call that like a wellness or adult use model, which is relatively less regulated than a highly regulated medical model, but still has elements of quality control and other aspects. So that's maybe one step this way. That's what people tend to mean when they say legalization, which is a massive term. But generally, they're talking about regulated adult use with some sort of state interaction through licensing or something. Then there's another model that I would say is somewhere between like what you'd call full decrim and that regulated use model, which people generally shorthand as like sacramental or religious use, which is usually very low touch. In the United States, it's with medicine and with other kind of pro programs, you really want like the government to be highly involved with religion. We want the government as le at least involved as possible. So in that environment, religious use is sort of accurate, but it's also sacramental, spiritual, ceremonial, there's kind of different frames there. But the idea there is that there's this whole area of practice that falls much more into what I think Aida was describing, which people usually has like the community use model or community use framework, which can look like traditional use through lineages. It can look like group use. You see that a lot with like veterans who are working in the underground or other people who are working in the underground who are just like, um, and you see this also with kind of the Ibogaine heroin detox frame where it's like people who are peers working with peers. It's a much less hierarchical. 
Um, and that can be anything from communities to sacramental use, which is mostly like self-regulated, you could say. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what might, people might call just straight decrim, which is just a reduction or elimination of criminal penalties related to the behavior, which thus allows really any expansion of a lot of different types of things, including maybe those other three pieces that I was describing, but also something that maybe falls outside of that, and like the personal use, the, I'm not gonna say 15 year old, but the person who's just like doing it at a concert because they wanna do it, or the person who's like renting a cabin with friends and doing it. So there's kind of this area where you do have, ideally in that situation, again, some sort of social design that permits that to happen safely, where you have uh, unarmed, unarmed crisis response, you have education, you have social services, you have things that allow people to be caught if they fall through the cracks because they're not themselves being regulated by a system, but they have access to that. So to your point, I think the best case scenario would allow for all four, if not maybe more variations of those frameworks to exist. And that's a really big open question because right now, for example, in cannabis, you don't really have that solved. Even though we've created a legal industry, which is really good in some ways, we've made it so the smell of marijuana is not a probable cause, which is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And we've also created this like, capitalist monstrosity that's done a lot to cannabis, which we can go into maybe in another night. Um, but all that to say that, that what we haven't done well is figure out how do you have a legal regulated industry and also like an unregulated or less regulated underground that doesn't also continue to oppress people who don't have a million dollars to get a license. And that, that, that question of how do you hold these different policy approaches simultaneously is I think one of the biggest questions that this field um, has the opportunity to answer going forward. So I'd like to see all that together about how we get there. Maybe we'll solve it tonight, I don't know. Um, yeah, if you haven't guessed by now, I'm, I'm more on the underground side. Um, I'm more on the fully um, decrim side, and I don't mean the organization decrim decriminalize or um, even the general policies that go forward. It doesn't, that doesn't feel like decriminalization to me. Um, my uncle is a Bwiti priest who's been working with Iboga for as long as I've been alive. Um, there is no licensing that he is going to go through. There is no certificate that he is going to get in order to continue to do his work with people that are suffering, right? He, is a, he has a tradition of being a healer of people, and he's going to keep doing that no matter what. What I would like is for him not to risk being um, arrested um, or fined every time he does medicine work with folks. I think it's really hard to have a conversation about um, you know, legal consequences, uh, positive or negative, uh, with psychedelics when the drug war is still alive for so many people of color in this country. Um, I think it's really easy to kind of, well, psychedelics are this, but heroin, cocaine, this is, you know, over here is something different. I think as long as we start, as long as we're doing that, we're going to continue to perpetuate a lot of the harms that are going on with sort of, sort of psychedelic exceptionalism as like part of the war on drugs. So I think any, anything in terms of what com goes forward has to look at substance use writ large in the United States and around the world. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, Alex de Tocqueville called us a nation of drunkards. Like we like, we like our drugs as Americans. Like we do drugs, all of us do drugs. Put caffeine, alcohol, and um, chocolate in there and we're all addicts, right? So why are we, like, when we're having these conversations about to what degree is it legal for you to do this substance or that substance, I, I need to know what's the, like, what is that legalization predicated on, right? When you start talking about, oh, it's for health and it's for safety, well, whose health and whose safety, if the very laws that are being utilized are the biggest risk to health and safety to 
members of the population. You see what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make sense. So for me, coming from the underground, my general orientation is, you know, as much as possible, stay away from law and law, stay away from these substances and let there be a communal understanding and communi communal standards as to how these things get implemented because human beings have been coming up with safety standards for this stuff, as you were saying, for thousands of years, right? Without the DEA. So I don't think we need the DEA involved in this, but that's me. I'm so enraptured with everybody's um, answers. I think the question was, what's the vision like going forward? Like, what, what can we all share? A couple of things came to mind as, <clears throat> as folks were talking. One is that my hope is that where this is all going is that we become non-consumptive of the planet that we share and that we really become equanimous to the value of life and the preciousness of life of all beings and not just becomes human centric. And then within that, you know, equilibrate our appreciation for our diversity, even within the human family. And I really don't think that there's any other, to me, interesting aspect of this besides that. Because I believe that this emergence, this reemergence is of a, of a divine intent, you know, that it's not just us, and I come from Western science, and I come from Western medicine, but um, there seems to be an, an intention that, that at least is clear to me in these journeys that um, we need to get back to the earth. We need to get back to our mother, we need to get back to you know, who we are and stop being so fascinated with, with ourselves or with each other, you know. We're lonely, we're traumatized. We kind of we had a good run without her, <laughs> you know, or in opposition to her. And I just don't see how we can intellectualize our way through any further. And, and, and I had a a, a, a group that I was sitting with, and one of the women, her husband was there, and you know he he turned out to be a sexual predator, you know, and she didn't know it, and he here he is like in ayahuasca and all these things, and I had this I'm old enough I'm 52 I, I had this experience with mindfulness when that that surged, and all these people were like mindfulness is the answer, you know, and then I I literally knew people who would who would weaponize their mindfulness because they had. They had, con they had developed their, their samadhi, their, their, their concentration, so sharply that they could just like slice you in half. But the compassion wasn't there. And the connection and the reality and the integrity and the humility. That's why I value humility so much. It's the doorway of progress. There's nowhere this is gonna go without humility. I just talked to a dear sister this morning who is a journey facilitator, a therapist, a psychedelic therapist. And she's just, she's just broken about like all of the exploitation, all of the predation, you know? Uh, and so all of that's still there. You know, the psychedelics aren't gonna answer it for us. They're not gonna make us enlightened, you know? It only, the universe can only ask, answer the question we ask it. And if we're not gonna ask, how can I not be a sexual predator? Then, you know, our free will is intact.
So I hope that's where it's going. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm really curious to hear uh, questions from the audience. What's coming up for you as you hear these different perspectives and maybe want to share from your own? Hi, everyone. I'm Santiago. Thank you for sharing. I'm curious. So in thinking about the use of psychedelics for medicinal purposes, I've seen how transformative they can be. Part of me really wants to support that. Part of me is a little bit concerned in seeing how it has in many ways, in many occasions, become a, a kind of an exploitative tourism industry. And living, I'm from Colombia as well, and living in the Bay Area, I've seen how in the, la, in the last many years, many instances, it, it is promoted as go find yourself, find the new way to start the best unicorn business. I'm promising you will find it. And every time I go back home, I see more and more people get on the plane who have been, you know, very proudly been fasting for days and going to these journeys, I'm sure they receive some type of medicine. And part of me is conflicted in how do we make it more accessible to people who really need it, because I think we all need it to some extent, without bringing down the barriers to exploitation elsewhere. I will attempt to answer some of this question. <laughs> it's a very good one. I'm also from Colombia on my mom's side. And really, um, it's interesting because as a side note, kind of connected to something you were saying, it's actually impossible to answer any of these questions about where we go without having an international lens because most of the substances we're talking about have some sort of international trade element. Um, that's especially true with stuff like cocaine and heroin, but it's true with other substances, including ayahuasca, which um, can and is increasingly grown in places other than the Amazon jungle, but um, still has a, a significant aspect of that on. And um, for those that this is a total side note, I'll just like throw this in the water. Um, if you all haven't already, you should really look up uh, Petro, the new the new Colombian president just spoke at the UN about a month ago about the legalization of cocaine. And it's a very, very, very good prophetic speech. It's really worth looking up. Um, first time you've had a really serious conversation about that at the global level that I'm just like so happy to see. Um, but to answer your question, so this is um, interesting because it kind of touches on kind of what you're saying, where I do have a, a bias, you could say, where I believe that there is, um, I'm, showing my woo cards here, but where there is some sort of like intelligence or like awareness that the plants themselves and the substances themselves have about what's going on, um, which is not so crazy if you think about trees talking to each other, which they do. So um, thinking about the idea that there's like some other aspect beyond just like human behavior interaction is um, not totally off the table. I'm not going to go super into that right now because it is a little bit woo, but it is a factor here where it's a, it is somewhat um, ethnocentric to your earlier point to say like, well, it's entirely our own decision around what happens here. And a lot of people, including a lot of the tribes that live in the Amazon would say that ayahuasca is intentionally leaving the jungle. It's not something that we're just doing. Um, so that's, that's a whole side note, but to answer your question kind of more concretely. So I really think it's really hard to answer this question in the abstract. It's really helpful to look at specific substances and the way that their actual like supply chain or their framework of like environmental eco ecological reality uh, exists. So I'll just give like three examples, but this is a conversation we could have about every substance because to your earlier point, I say LSD, while it does have this kind of origin in ergot, most likely that has some sort of natural or origin the production of LSD does not really have the ecological impact that the harvesting of peyote does, or that the planting or replanting of a substance like ayahuasca or the plants involved in ayahuasca does, because while it grows primarily in the, in the Amazon rainforest, it can grow in other places. So what I'll do is I'll just give three quick kind of examples at different scales. So if you look at something like peyote, which is a particularly interesting plant, one, one because it's the only one that 
in the continental United States grows naturally besides mushrooms that has kind of an entheogenic or psychedelic effect. Um, so, and so, well, San Pedro does, but I think that San Pedro is not native to the United States. It now grows everywhere here, but Parody has been native to the United States for a long time. San Pedro now is literally everywhere, especially in LA. But um, but it is everywhere, and I think like to that. But to that point, it's like a relatively small ecological area. It's a highly vulnerable plant with identifiable traditions of people who have been using it for a very long time. The number of traditions that identifiably have been using it for a very long time is very small. There's like a single digit number of tribes that, and not, now it's much broader because the Native American church has brought it in, has brought it, has brought it in. But I say that to say that when it comes to something like that where you have a very high ecological cost for something that takes 20 plus years to grow, that has an identifiable group of people that are associated with it, the barriers to entry to access for the average person need to stay really high, just from a pra practical sense. Um, because if we don't, then we will make it go extended. We will continue to like exploit and take. Um, so I think that that's one example of where you actually want to keep barriers to entry relatively high, even though from like a justice point of view, I'm like, no criminalization for anything. But if you're out here like shooting endangered birds, like you probably shouldn't be able to do that. Like if you're going to be the person that's going to kill the last white rhino, like there should probably be consequences to that. Even as someone who's like really opposed to kind of punitive consequences for most behaviors, I can understand that from a deterrence perspective. So that's one. The second example is ayahuasca, which I think is the one that you brought. And it's interesting because this is a rabbit hole. I won't go down right now. But there's a big difference between the ayahuasca culture in Brazil versus Costa Rica versus Peru versus Colombia. Colombia has done one of the best jobs of keeping it out of the public eye. And it's kind of like do, don't ask, don't tell. Whereas in Peru, you see a huge increase. And in Costa Rica, you see a huge commercialization around the behavior, both from people who are themselves indigenous as well as from various mestizo people who are you know, one, two, three, five degrees away from the indigenous tradition itself. Ayahuasca is a little bit different because it does grow all over the Amazon. It can grow in a lot of other places, and it grows quickly. So you see ayahuasca now being grown in Hawaii, in Florida, and I'm sure in other places where it can be cultivated. And generally speaking, while the Wirarica, who work with peyote and the Native American church, have been really careful about who they want to increase access to peyote, there's been a much different tenor from a lot of the Amazonian tribes with ayahuasca. That doesn't mean they're like, yeah, commercialize everything. But they will say, many will say, um, this is from my own experience, not like speaking for them necessarily, but that ayahuasca may be for everyone, but serving is serving it is not for everyone. And you don't get to just like take ownership of the tradition just because you've practiced it for eight months or a couple of years or whatever. So I think in that case, I could see a version of reality where you have ayahuasca, for example, that's being cultivated in places that are not the Amazon rainforest. Now, that doesn't mean we should ignore the Amazon because there's a lot of other reasons we need to be protecting it besides just our desire to have DMT. Um, but I think that that is one example where you have a larger number of identifiable tribes that work with it. You have a larger geographic region, and you have something that can be cultivated in multiple places, assuming you're still working with plants. And another like small caveat here to your point, there's a whole heroin fentanyl conversation that I won't go into right now, but the reason fentanyl is proliferated is because you can make it in labs anywhere. It's very different from heroin, which you need crops, you need space, you need cultivation, you need time. It's very different. So that the reason that we've seen that trade shift is because of that access to that thing. So the last example I'll give, I'll give is mushrooms, whereas to your point, it is true that the reason the West knows about mushrooms is because of Maria Sabina, because of the story of Gordon Wasson, but there are 200 species of mushrooms that grow all over the world. There are tribes that have been working with mushrooms literally on every continent for a long time. We have lots of evidence for that. So mushrooms I would see as being, let's say, like something that would fall into the least ecological impact because they're the easiest to grow, they're the cheapest to grow, they grow everywhere. And while there are tribes associated with it, they have I would say the least 
direct cultural kind of attachment or baggage relative to some of these other substances because you do have European traditions that have been working with mushrooms for a long time. White people have been working with mushrooms even though they lost it and they all switched to beer in the 1500s, but that's a whole other story. So all that to say, all that to say that there is like a kind of, a, there's a spectrum and I would say like that might be different for something like LSD. So TLDR, it's a really hard conversation because when it comes to tourism in particular, where a lot of places that are highly exploited rely on tourism, it's one thing to say, well, you shouldn't, um, I was going to say go to Hawaii, that's a whole rabbit hole I won't go down, but like, you know, you shouldn't go to any of these places that rely on tourism, and that's like true in one sense, and also it's like the only way because of the fucked up economic system that we live in that resources are able to get to the people in this particular region. So there's definitely this like push-pull of like, you kind of can't win, and I think as far as like what to do, I think as long as we're talking about like what people call right relation, which is a very big conversation, but really like how to be aware of, kind of to your point earlier, be aware of like when, even if implicitly, even when we're coming from the most best intentions possible and we really just want to heal ourselves and our lineages, that our behavior like are, is inherently exploitative. Like how do we like as individuals make decisions about how to do that and how to relate to that? That's on a personal level. I'm not going to go down to the other thing, which is like we have social implications to these bigger questions, which I'll stop for now because that's a bigger Can bigger I pick question, that up? So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, want, I just want, because it's already been talked about, so I want to talk about Europe, Europe and whiteness for a second, right? And I think there's this myth that goes around that, like, white people or, like, Europeans did not have access to psychedelics, or that it's not in the tradition of, like, Europe to, like, alter consciousness through, through plants. And that is completely and totally not true, right? There's a long tradition of European, Scandinavian, Irish, English, Spanish, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of different papers, right? Where people have access to these. So what is the purpose of going to Colombia? No offense to Colombia, right? Like, respect, right? Respe like, respect Colombia, respect this country. But why are there so many white people, and more people of color are doing it too, more black people are doing it. Why are they going in droves to these other countries, right? Is it about the plant medicine, or is it about this cultural tourism that goes along with it? And, I, and, and, what, and is there that cultural tourism that's also inherent in the psychedelic movement, right? So my challenge, when I talk to people, I was like, white people, talk to your ancestors. If you're gonna do a journey, do your own, what is, it, what's the, what is the psychedelic access in your home cultures, right? Explore, take your time, figure it out. I've done it for white people. I've looked at the, um, the Temple of Eleusis, Right, and like what was going on there? Again, women over the age of 50 connected to the land who are responsible for a psychedelic tradition that lasted longer than the history of Christianity, and it happened in Greece. Right, so if, if I can do that, and that's not my culture, why can't white people do that? Why is Gabon so important? Why is Colombia so important? Why is Costa Rica so important? Is it about the plants? Is it about that? Or, is, as you were saying, is there some bigger healing that maybe needs to go on? And what we don't want to do is use the plants, use this consciousness altering to sidestep that important work that happens. Because maybe if we did that, we'd have a better connection with the land. We'd have a better connection with the animals. We'd have a better connection with the plants. And maybe we wouldn't be killing the planet. 
I don't know if I easily would agree with this, but I also just add in the, the synthetic aspect. We, we didn't even touch into that, but like, you know, when you add that element of like bringing in synthetic substances, which some people are really resistant to because of the, like, it's psychedelic, it's a plant. Um, I don't necessarily have that same concern about the distinction. And I think the idea that we can like synthesize mescaline is pretty amazing because that means we don't have to be pulling peyote out of the ground. So that's just like another element here, which maybe affects not the tourism aspect, but the access to the actual molecule factor. When I came back from the first journey in Costa Rica, I was never going to do it again, you know? And I tend to be one of these people, um, I was squeaky clean, ayahuasca was the first drug I ever did. And I, I never smoked a cigarette, like I was just super not interested in that. I just would do it through, uh, you know, solo camping, vision questing, you know, kind of putting my body through that kind of stuff. What I see is um, the, the second journey I went on was a women's retreat. And the first thing Ayahuasca showed me is the word consumer. And she, she basically has built on that theme in the last four years, which is basically you take something like this, this opportunity to wake up, and then you, you collide that with a, an, a, an addict, a, the addict to consumption, that, that mindset. And then you get this grasping and you get this desperation and, you, and, and there's an immaturity with respect to how to hold or how to approach. So I think that there's a role, and I haven't heard anybody talk about this, maybe MAPS is up to this, but a role to like have a, a council of elders um, to really give guidance, you know, so that a 21-year-old doesn't just buy a, a ticket to Peru and drink street ayahuasca, which, which is laced with fentanyl. You know, like th there needs to be an expectation, there needs to be kind of a, a metering, a measuring, and on education on you're not just chasing peak experience here. You're not just chasing, chasing fireworks. You know, the, the more people do these things, the more they become interested in the integration and take their time with that. You know, 90 days, 220 days, six months, and really, really do it, the, I, th I think, the most gradual way that, that really keeps track of how the brain moves, too. Neuroplastic change has very uh, predictive gates of where, just like building muscle, of, of where you can build it and where, where you can change the, the nature of how the mind is operating at its default, default mode network. So, you know, in, on top of everything that these brilliant men have said, I would say that the, the problem we have is this, this immaturity and, and this, this, this lack of understanding of what does, what does the beginner experience look like, you know, is beginner always MDMA? Is, I'm just putting that out there. Is ayahuasca for shamanic only? Like those, that's how it, it started. It wasn't by the patient, it was by the doctor, you know? And so how do we organize these, these things according to their, their strengths and also their sustainability, to your point? And, and just listen, listen to the plants. That it's, as if, it's as if we're objectifying these things. This is a relationship. I wouldn't just go home and order my husband around and tell him to do this and that, I wouldn't stay married for very long, you know? But, but when something can't talk with a mouth in English, um, we tend to, you know, dom it. And we just need to not dom everything, you know? Like, just really get humble about that. Welcome back to our prototype of our journey we've taken here tonight. We had a little prep. You may have noticed there was a little prep with our 
opening, setting the container here, setting the space, um, our panel kind of preparing us for the experience of, of doing some of these more interactive, semi-interactive labs. And now you might call this the integration moment. Um, thank you, so one person caught that. <laughs> Thanks. We've got a few questions here and also wanna, before we get to that offer space for if there's any like bubbling up ahas, insights, um, interesting thoughts, things you wanna share, uh, make space for that first. Uh, yes, hi, I was actually just gonna briefly ask how, how that was for you. I saw you sitting with the, uh, the goggles on over there. How, how was that experience in that, that room over oh, there? Oh, how was that for me? Mm -hmm. What, could you explain more about what, what happened there? I was, I was hoping to do it, but we didn't have, oh. have time. Oh. Um. <laughs> well, I, I was playing, I, it, it plays with your voice. So I, 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 I guess I came out feeling like if I wanted to try to explain a journey to someone, maybe this is the closest I could get to that. Um, and, and then also having my own um, insecurities around like voice. And so like um, karaoke would be my worst nightmare. <laughs> so like I wanted to sing. I wanted to know what it would do with if I sang, but I didn't want to sing. And then also being surprised, taking the goggles off and all of a sudden there being like 12 people there and going, I'm so glad I didn't sing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was just my, my own <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to share a different experience. Thanks for hosting this. This has been really great. Um, I think at the beginning of the night, whenever I was sitting here listening to all the panelists, it was very interesting to kind of hear all of the different perspectives of psychedelic medicine and design. And going through that, I felt um, a little more isolated or a little more unique in my personal experience and like what psychedelic medicine and design has meant for me thus far. Um, and then going into the, I think, the conscious capital discussion, there were a lot of moments where I was standing around in a small group, and there were a lot of people who had very similar experiences to me, and we were all kind of discussing things where you couldn't really articulate exactly what that feeling was, but in that conversation, it, it was um, kind of coming all together. So for me, at the beginning of the night, it was very separate, it was very alone, but then having those one-on-one -on -one or, group or group conversations, it was able to kind of all come together, and I thought that was a really interesting experience. Yeah, I think um, initially I just didn't realize the diff like how wide the spectrum was of psychedelic medicine. I think for me, I was only able to um, experience it and personify it through my own lens. And so then coming to this and like seeing how wide and how different the experiences are for everyone was a little eye-opening for me. But then going into the conscious capitalism conversation, I think um, our moderator did a great job of, I think, describing how there are some things that you just can't explain, but you feel and you feel in different areas. Um, and I think that really resonated with a lot of the different folks in the group. And I think that was a piece that brought everyone together. My whole life, I, I come from a native indigenous background and sort of my understanding, similar to what was said on stage earlier, um, more in the beginning was that psychedelics isn't necessarily like, it's not, it's not necessarily like a big thing in my family, but um, my family does come from more of the spirit, or I guess what in academic spaces we would call it the spiritual background. And um, it's sort of trusting your intuition and sort of things that 
you can't necessarily explain, at least in this language. Um, and so I think when it, when it comes to psychedelics, something I did think before was I was actually a lot of, I was fearful, I was, a lot, I was very scared of what public discourse would do to psychedelics um, because I mean, it's very new now, like, that it's becoming so public, um, at least in academia, and accepted in academia. Um, but I think that is sort of what I, like, right now I'm starting to feel a little more optimistic about it, because I was worried that if institutions of any kind, whether it's government or, uh, you know, universities, I was worried that if they were in charge of the discourse and even the policies, you know, that it could hurt certain you know, at least people where I would come from, um, because it would be more policed and maybe they would be criminalized for it, even though you can't necessarily get a license for being uh, a healer for, you know, literally decades. Um, and I'm talking about, like, indigenous tribes. You know, I'm not talking about, like, someone who got a piece of paper that says they're okay to do something. Um, so I think that is actually what I walk away with today, is just that I'm, I do feel a little better about institutions mingling with this idea, because I think... Um, the crossroad between indigenous knowledge and, and institutional knowledge is, I think that I'm personally open to like extending my hand out to the academic and learning from their side. But on my side, I feel like there are, there are people who maybe would come from my tribe who wouldn't even agree with what I'm saying right now because they're not in the room. Um, and they might tell me something else, you know? But I think that's sort of the big takeaway for me personally. Um, I knew about psychedelics for a long time, and it's in my family and sort of the bloodline, if you want to call it that. But yeah, I think um, I do feel better about some of the people who are leading these conversations in academia. Um, and yeah, that's, that's essentially, yeah, you got me. You guys got me. So. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Hi, thank you so much for this. It's honestly been such a wonderful night um, and to learn from so many amazing people. Um, but I've always been really interested in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. I took the one-unit course, and um, whenever I take a class and you get to choose to write about something, I always write about this and try to learn more about it. So I've always had an interest, but I think my interest comes from a place of where it's still considered taboo in a lot of academic circumstances. And so it's almost like me trying to convince myself that I can be academic about this and I really care about it, and it's something that I can write a really good paper about and not because... I just want to have fun, but because it's something that can change a lot of people's lives. And I think what was really nice tonight is hearing so much from an academic standpoint of there are so many angles to look at it from, and it, the interest can come from so many different places. You don't have to excuse why you care about it all the time. It's something important, and as long as it matters to you and you understand that it can change people's lives and it can have a real effect on society, I think that's more than enough to start learning about it. So. If, if, I, if I can piggyback on that, just I, I really appreciate that coming from a clinical side. I, I think there's a, a way of talking about psychedelics that's spiritual and the, the woo, which is not usually my, my style, but I think there's also a, a way of speaking very plain human language about a person is suffering, they're stuck in a certain way of thinking, and they're hurting, and this ha there happens to be, there just happens to be a mushroom or whatever it may be that... Um, causes a person to open up in certain ways or change their thinking. Those are not woo concepts. Those are, those are normal human processes of change and opening and, and, and growth. In fact, those are the exact processes we uh, drive toward in regular psychotherapy. 
So I think there's a very plain medical, um, not, not sterile, just kind of, um, yeah, plain way of speaking about some very transformational, um, beautiful things, which, which you just um, said very well. Sorry, I guess I had the mic already over here. Yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead and begin, <laughs> then we'll go up here next. Something that I found really interesting was the role of psychedelics in addressing like this nexus between human and planetary health, where it seems that the core of the climate crisis is this um, phenomenon of ego over eco, like at the global level. Um, and this is definitely more from um, like the, the realm of Wu, but it's interesting that like we power our society by um, disrupting the end of the carbon cycle, like the, the, the gates between essentially fossils um, and the way that that carbon is rebirthed. It's like where we put a pipeline between, I guess, this process of death and rebirth. And it's also interesting that these psychedelic compounds come from um, mushrooms and uh, decomposers that also exist at this like border between uh, decay and rebirth. And I think that there's a connection there where psychedelics can inspire um, or, or cause ego death or the dissolution of self. And that's um, sort of what we needed to return to like harmony with our surroundings. Um, so I thought what Mei was saying was really interesting with how we need to apply, apply that and like not see these plants as objects, um, but as things that have relationships with. Yeah, one, one of the questions that sort of came up in my mind is, so there's clearly a, a role that psychedelics can play in people that are suffering, uh, either from depression or anxiety or PTSD or something like that. Um, but there are many other methods used to help people like that. There are the traditional medicines, and there's a whole array of those, and then there are, is therapy, and there's a whole array of that. And then there's magnetic stimulation, and I'm probably forgetting a few things. And it seems like the intersection between those two or these various methods and how they interfere with one another potentially uh, is not that well understood because the people tend to be specialized in a certain area. And for example, the traditional psychiatrists have a whole battery of medicine. But I imagine if you ask them, so how does that work with psychedelics? I'm not sure they have an answer to that question. So I'm interested to see whether people are, maybe this is a question for you, whether people are studying that, because in the end when somebody's suffering, it's very hard for them to integrate all of that and figure out what they should try. And if they were to do the trial and error, I mean, they should be able to ask advice to somebody what's the right way to do it. So. I'll just touch on that briefly. Yeah, I think uh, psychedelic therapy is actually a, a, a um, rare intersection of pharmacology and receptor under the hood mechanics and and therapy um, one like one one specific question maybe to make it not so broad is you have these I think they're called SSRIs and mm -hmm. SNRIs and the way I understand it they interact with psychedelics or they either dampen the effect of it or something like that but I'm not sure it's well researched or understood uh, yeah, so and maybe you can provide the answer to that. I can't, unfortunately. We it's still being researched. In fact, yeah, Lindsay, raise your hand, Lindsay. Postdoc neuroscientist. The papers you've read about um, psychedelics uh, enhancing neuroplasticity were actually done by Lindsay, uh, in part 
who's now here um, to do more of that science. Um, the, I'll just say really briefly, to your point, there's a, there's a proposal that psychedelics in some way open a critical period, reopen a critical period where there's an enhanced ability to learn, maybe dependent on this neuroplasticity idea. So if you have a short window of time where you can, uh, you're more receptive, uh, increased ability to learn, and then you infuse good psychotherapy, compassionate, warm, supportive environment, then you can uh, amplify, uh, potentiate the, the therapeutic effects. You just asked um, briefly about the use of something like SSRIs or SNRIs and how that might dampen a psychedelic experience. And so what people have shown is that with chronic use of those kinds of drugs, you actually get a, a down-regulation of a receptor that psychedelics hit. So it's a lot, when you, when you don't have as much of that receptor around, it's a lot harder to get that full effect, which is often why people who are on those types of therapies have to double or triple the dose of what a, a normal person might take. And so there's research being done now about if you wean yourself off of those kinds of traditional antidepressants, um, how long does it take to rebuild up that population so that you would be equally as sensitive again to something like psychedelic therapy? And so that research is, is going on now. I hope that answered your question. straight. Um, uh, two, two thoughts. One, I, I'm, we're so fortunate that we have um, <laughs> a bit of an answer in the room. Um, and, and I think that gets to part of what we're trying to do here, which is cross-pollinate and, and see who, who we can bring together and how we can think differently. Um, I've already heard some, some people that need to meet, apparently George and um, Fede and Izzy need to spend some time together. Um, just at the like arm's length boards they were at. So, um, and, and then I thank you for asking a question because that's kind of where we want to go as we, as we start to wrap up our night, uh, which is to invite any final curiosities, outstanding questions, um, things that have new, newly come up for you. We're not going to answer them right now, but um, we can listen to a few, and then also invite you to write on your Post-its any questions, spaces that you would love to be, you know, if uh, for a class to go. You know, what are the topics you're most interested in? What are the questions you're most curious about? Who else should we be inviting to play? Who else needs to be here that we don't know about? Um, uh, and so I'll, I'll make space for that, and, and then any final um, thoughts or insights or wisdom from, we've, we've got some D-School wisdom keepers in the room <laughs> um, that I'll also invite in to share. Hi, um, I guess final thoughts regarding like what I used to think, but now I think, um, Christian, um, I don't know if this is like a symposium or a seminar, but um, I think it's changed the way I think about like the word recreational. Um, I, I think I never, it's funny because, like years, I've I've heard that word. I, I just never I've never associated with with associated it with something, um, like, literally in the word itself, like recreation, in terms of like to recreate recreate like one spirits or like one soul or mind or anything like that. I've just never thought of it that way. It's always been a sort of negative connotation, um, related to it. It's kind of changed now. So yeah, that's just a random thing. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. I think same for me until you just said that. So thanks for putting that in the room. Um, and just, I just wanted to build on what Elisa was saying. So as we think about what a full class might look like in the future, if that's possible, I think what you share tonight and the questions that you have would help us bring that to life in a way that would best serve you. So if you could share in that spirit as well, that would be really helpful. All right, I'm going to come back in the audience and I'm going to pass the mic around. Um, I did think, well, I'm just reflecting on the, the session upstairs. Um, was it Chris? Is that? I thought the historical perspective was terrific. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting sort of way to, I guess, contextualize a lot of, I mean, th this sort of space is moving very fast right now. A lot of, you know, uh, legislative changes and like in industry changes are sort of coming up and, and I, I think it's important to sort of contextualize it in the, the sort of recent and then also the long run history of psychedelics. So I would hope that a class would you know, incorporate that or explore that more. Earlier we were talking about um, psychedelics and how kind of international it is. It would be great to see that aspect as a part of the class. I'll, I'll just add that if you're interested in the um, medical, more medical side, we teach a, I, I teach a Introduction to Psychedelic Medicine course here from January to March, which is a totally separate thing, 10 weeks, which you're, all, which you're welcome to, to come to, just FYI. Hi, um, I think, uh, first of all, thank you so much for um, exposing all of us to so many great thinkers around this topic, um, so many different individuals across the spectrum. Um, I think something that Ayuse had said uh, that struck me was, um, do you know what your ancestors used? What were they doing first? And that's something that I didn't think about before. I definitely think about now, like, what did they do in China 10,000 years ago? Um, and I think having that aspect of, um, I think what the young lady up front was saying, the international cultures and some of that historical perspective, like, what did Ireland do, you know, and what did Russia do, um, those kinds of things would, I think, help put things in perspective for me, certainly. And from, for all these different people from all walks of life, it's like, oh, cool, I didn't know that about wherever I came from. Um, so anyway, thank you again. This has been really enlightening. I would, I would like to add on to the historical aspect. I think one of the speakers noted the president of a major South American country speaking about legalization at the UN. So thinking beyond America, and how is legalization of um, legalization or decriminalization operating on a global scale? And also the war on drugs, much of which has been perpetuated by the United States across the world, what that impact is. We're recording this this evening, and we're going to put it out into the world in some podcast public form. If you've shared tonight and you don't want your voice on that, um, on that share. Um, please just go to Seamus, raise your hand, and let him know. No problem. I'm happy to make that happen. And um, a, bit, a last invitation to, for anyone that was shy to drop wishes, questions, curiosities. Um, and, a, and a huge thanks for, for going with us on this um, emergent, ambiguous journey. Um, we're, so, we're so grateful to have you all here. Thank you.